Hello, James Kenny here, and welcome to my podcast, Land of the Golden Sunset, the evolution of the Irish from biblical times. This is episode 39, and it's about the creation of Northern Ireland, its original design in 1607, and eventual emergence in 1922. I hope you like this, and that you will share with others on social media. And if you wish to become a patron of this podcast, you can do so by visiting www.landofthegoldensunset.podbean.com. England's political connection with Ireland began in 1155 when Pope Adrian IV, the only Englishman to have been Pope, issued a papal bull that gave King Henry II permission to invade Ireland as a means of strengthening the papacy's control over the Irish Roman Catholic Church. The whole scheme was based on what we would call fake news in today's parlance, as it is referred to in history as the Popish Plot. This was followed in 1169 by the Norman invasion of Ireland, led by General Richard de Clare, also known as Strongbow. The English crown did not attempt to assert full control of the island until after Henry VIII's repudiation of papal authority over the church in England and the subsequent rebellion of the Earl of Kildare in Ireland in 1534, threatening English dominance here. Until the break with Rome, it was widely believed that Ireland was a papal possession, granted as a mere fiefdom to the English king. So in 1541, Henry VIII asserted England's claim to Ireland, free from the papal overlordship, by proclaiming himself King of Ireland. Early in the king's reign, the 8th Earl of Kildare, Gerald Fitzgerald, died while on an expedition against the O'Carrolls. He was mortally wounded when watering his horse in the river Greece at Kilkay. He was conveyed back to Kildare for burial on or around the 3rd of September, 1513. He served as Lord Deputy of Ireland from 1477 to 1494 and from 1496 onwards. His power was so great that he was called the Uncrowned King of Ireland. He was succeeded by his son, Gerald Oog, whom the Crown of England appointed to the position held by his father, namely Lord Deputy. Gerald Oog soon found his enemies at court plotting to overthrow him. The King liked him, but Cardinal Wolsey hated his guts. At that time also, James Fitzmaurice Fitzgerald, 10th Earl of Desmond, had plans to drive the English out of Ireland. Wolsey heard of the plot and caused the Earl of Desmond to be summoned to London. James Fitzmaurice Fitzgerald declined, and the King sent a messenger to his viceroy in Ireland, the Earl of Kildare, to clap Fitzmaurice Fitzgerald, the Earl of Desmond, in irons and ship him to London. When Kildare failed, Cardinal Wolsey accused him of high treason, and Gerald Oge was summoned to England to answer the charge. He was immediately committed to the Tower of London, where he died of grief on the 12th of December, 1534. Following the Nine Years' War, 1594-1603, to 1603, political power rested 
in the hands of a Protestant ascendancy minority and was marked by a British Crown policy of plantation, involving the arrival of thousands of English and Scottish Protestant settlers. This would be called ethnic cleansing in today's parlance, with the consequent displacement of the pre-plantation Roman Catholic landholders. As the military and political defeat of Gaelic Ireland became more pronounced in the early 17th century, sectarian conflict became a recurrent theme in Irish history. Although Northern Ireland was not established as an entity until the Anglo-Irish Agreement of 1921, the seeds were sown way back in 1603 in the Treaty of Mellifont. Following the English victory in the Battle of Kinsale over the Irish and their Spanish allies, Hugh O'Neill and Hugh O'Donnell returned north to protect their lands. The Lord Deputy of Ireland, Charles Blount, 8th Baron Mountjoy, had succeeded in defeating them, where his predecessor, Robert Devereux, 2nd Earl of Essex, had failed. However, Mountjoy knew that as long as Hugh O'Neill was still free, he was a serious threat. Although most of the lesser chiefs allied with O'Neill had been compelled to submit, others, including Rory O'Donnell, Brian Og O'Rourke, Hugh Connacht Maguire, brother of Hugh Maguire, and Donald Camo Sullivan Bear, remained loyal to the O'Neill. During the spring of 1603, Lord Mountjoy concentrated his campaign in the northern counties. He ordered all land be scorched, harvests and stock were destroyed, and famine soon prevailed. Mountjoy and the English Privy Council had long urged Queen Elizabeth I of England to make peace. The war was costing three quarters of the exchequer's annual revenue, and the aged queen had been obliged to maintain an army of 20,000 men for several years past. By contrast, the English army assisting the Dutch during the Eighty Years' War was never more than 12,000 strong. Horrified by the cost of the war, Elizabeth now dropped her insistence on unconditional surrender and authorised Mountjoy to deal with the O'Neill upon honourable terms. The agents employed by the Lord Deputy in the negotiations were Sir William Godolphin and Sir Garrett Moore, a personal friend of O'Neill. Moore found O'Neill in early March at his retreat near Loch Ney and persuaded him that he should negotiate peace terms and would travel under safe conduct. Negotiations were conducted at Mellifont, near Drogheda in County Louth. This was Sir Garrett Moore's seat, which had been sold to his family following the dissolution of the Cistercian Abbey. It was the first abbey of the order to be built in Ireland. In 1152, it hosted the Synod of Kells Mellifont. After its dissolution in 1539, the abbey became a private manor house. This saw the signing of the Treaty of Mellifont in 1603 and served as William of Orange's headquarters in 1690 during the Battle of the Boyne. On the 27th of March 1603, Mountjoy received news that the Queen had died in London on the 24th of March, but he kept the information from the other parties until the 5th of April, because this might have caused a further delay if the new King James I had wanted to appoint 
different negotiators. On the 30th of March, 1603, Hugh O'Neill submitted to the king. The pardon and the terms were considered to be very generous at the time. In return for renouncing the Gaelic title, the O'Neill, the attainer that had stripped him of the title Earl of Tyrone was reversed, allowing him a seat in the Irish House of Lords. He retained his traditional core territory, apart from any church lands which was held in freehold title under English property law. The Earl of Tyrone swore to be loyal to the crown and not to seek further assistance from foreign power. In return, he received a pardon. Brehan Law was to be replaced in his lands with English law. The earls were no longer permitted to support the Gaelic bards. English would be the official language. Catholic colleges could not be built on his property. The terms were similar in policy to many previous surrender and regrant agreements conducted after 1537 between the British Crown and many autonomous Irish chieftains. But unusually, O'Neill was not obliged to convert to the Church of Ireland. Around the same time, under the terms of the Treaty of London, the kings of England and Spain committed each side to the cessation of all hostility and enmity from the 24th of April 1603 forward. The terms further provided that neither side would furnish soldiers, provision, money, arms, ammunition or any other kind of assistance to wage war with the enemies and rebels of the other party. By that, the Irish rebels understood that no more aid could be expected from Spain. On the 2nd of June 1603, Mountjoy left Ireland in the company of Hugh O'Neill and the new Lord of Tyrconnell, Rory O'Donnell, to see King James in London. In 1604, an act of oblivion declared that all offences against the Crown committed before the King's accession were to be pardoned, remitted and utterly extinguished. O'Neill returned to Ulster and appeared to have become a model subject of the Crown. Mountjoy, now a Privy Councillor, remained a champion of the terms of the treaty, and it seemed he had become quite taken with his former adversary. The elderly George Carey, who took over as Lord Deputy, made no attempt to clip O'Neill's wings. However, the state of affairs was reversed when Sir Arthur Chichester was sworn in as Lord Deputy in February 1605. Arthur Chichester saw Irish Catholicism as a major threat to the Crown after the gunpowder plot was revealed in October 1605. The gunpowder plot was a failed attempt to assassinate King James I of England during the opening of Parliament in November 1605. The plan was organised by Robert Catsby, a devout English Catholic who hoped to kill the Protestant King James and establish Catholic rule in England. Though no Irish were involved in the plot, Chichester oversaw a widespread persecution of Catholics and he ordered the execution of two bishops. He led the campaign by royal officials acting on the complaints of the tenants to undermine the authority of Tyrone and Tyrconnell and to erode their economic base in contravention of the Treaty of Mellifont. When Hugh O'Neill and other rebel chieftains were forced to leave Ireland in the flight of the Earls in 1607, Chichester seized their lands under the law of forfeiture 
and the plantation of Ulster followed within a decade. Sir Arthur Chichester's career in Ireland began when in 1598 the second Earl of Essex appointed him governor of Carrickfergus following the death of his brother Sir John Chichester who had been killed at the Battle of Carrickfergus the previous year. During the Nine Years' War Chichester commanded royal troops in Ulster. His tactics included a scorched earth policy. He encircled O'Neill, the Earl of Tyrone's forces, with garrisons effectively starving the Earl's troops. In a letter to Robert Cecil in 1600, he stated, A million swords will not do them so much harm as one winter's famine. While these tactics were not initially devised by Chichester, he carried them out ruthlessly, gaining a hate-figure status amongst the Irish. O'Neill's weakening military position forced him to abandon and destroy his capital at Dungannon. Following the signing of the Treaty of Mellifont, Chichester succeeded the first Earl of Devonshire, previously known as Lord Mountjoy, as Lord Deputy of Ireland from the 3rd of February 1605. Following the flight of the Earls in 1607, Chichester was a leading figure during the plantation of Ulster. This ethnic cleansing exercise initially meant that all the native lords lost their land to Protestant planters from England and Scotland. However, Chichester successfully campaigned to award veterans of the Nine Years' War land as well. This was a very successful exercise by the British, as it meant that a very large percentage of the population of the northern counties of Ireland were English and Scottish Protestant landowners indebted to the Crown for their newfound positions of wealth and power. When Northern Ireland was created under the Government of Ireland Act 1920, the Protestant Unionists were in power and were not inclined to include the minority Catholic nationalist citizens in the Government Assembly at Stormont. Years and years of bigotry, discrimination and dominance ensued. Life was very difficult for the minority as the ethos of Northern Ireland was unambiguously sectarian. Unfortunately, there would be very little evolution of the Irish on this part of the land of the golden sunset for many years to come. The Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association formed in Belfast on the 9th of April 1967. NICRA's membership extended to trade unionists, communists, liberals, socialists, with Republicans eventually constituting five of the 13 members of its Executive Council. In February 1968, NICRA held a press conference in London and were loud in proclaiming that this was the year to end all the talking and to forge ahead with positive action. It was hoped that people everywhere would soon take notice of them. But even though they prepared press releases which were handed out, very little media attention followed. Marching for civil rights was a new development which caught the imagination of disadvantaged people all over the world, particularly when TV pictures were beamed into millions of home from the American civil rights marches. The organizers of NICRA believed that this was the way forward for the downtrodden and disenfranchised Catholics in Northern Ireland. They expected a certain amount of success, but instead at first, they got only adverse publicity. By a strange coincidence, the MP representing Derry in the Stormont Parliament had the historically familiar name of James Chichester Clark, 
1923 to 2002. His cousin was Terence O'Neill, 1914-1990, the fourth Prime Minister of Northern Ireland from 1963-1969. to What a strange association of historic names. Almost four centuries ago, such names were in opposing camps as enemies, but were part of the Protestant ascendancy in control of Northern Ireland in 1965. Terence O'Neill called a snap election to test his popularity after his historic meetings with the Taoiseach of the Republic of Ireland. On the 14th of January 1965, a meeting between the Taoiseach of Ireland, Sean Limas, and the Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, Terence O'Neill, occurred for the first time since the partition of Ireland in 1922. The 1965 Northern Ireland general election was held on the 25th of November. Like all previous elections to the Parliament of Northern Ireland, it produced a large majority for the Ulster Unionist Party. This was the last election in Northern Ireland in which one party won a majority of the vote. The Ulster Unionists increased their vote to win 36 seats, largely due to a reduction in the number of uncontested seats. Nationalists, led by Eddie McAteer, won nine seats, while the Northern Ireland Labour Party won two seats. This turned out to be a strange election in many ways, with a civil rights campaign in 1968-69 and accusations against Stormont of causing depopulation of the west of the province and developing the east to maintain a unionist majority. But the administration were not deterred and continued to isolate the mainly Catholic population in the West. In protest, on the 20th of June 1968, Austin Curry squatted at a Kennard Park house given to a single Unionist secretary during a housing protest in Caledon. All 14 houses in the new council development had been allocated to Protestants. Then a sitting MP in the Home Rule Parliament of Northern Ireland, Curry's protest was unanimously approved by the Nationalist Party the next day. This act was done to highlight continuous blatant discrimination against Catholic families and spurred on activists to continue to demonstrate against such housing scandals. This was carried a step further by sit-down obstructionist tactics on Craigavon Bridge when the Stormont Minister arrived to open a new development. There was no a need to form a strong association to highlight the many grievances of the Catholic nationalist minority. In 1968, NICRA gave notice that they would take action to achieve their legitimate entitlements. On the 5th of October 1968, a group invaded the public gallery at the Guildhall in Derry, while the monthly meeting of the corporation was in progress. They created havoc within and afterwards carried it to the street outside where they blocked the main road with the mobile home of a needy family who had recently been ignored with their application for a house. The activists were summoned to appear in court to answer for their unruly behaviour, but their actions brought the desired result and the family were given a house. The civil rights activists had lit a flame that was not going to be extinguished until justice was done. On the 24th of August 1968, the first civil rights march was staged, the six-mile procession in County Tyrone between Coal Island and Dungannon, based on the model of the American civil rights marches, was not attended by great numbers. 
but did receive a substantial amount of local publicity and served as a template for future protests. Nikra held their next march between the walls of Derry and into the city centre on the 5th of October 1968 to cause the maximum provocation to the authorities. The RUC intervened to block the route of the march and a riot erupted. Violence spread throughout the city and 77 civilians and 11 RUC officers were injured. The marchers had won the propaganda battle. They were calling for civil rights and being hit over the head by a police force cast in the role of oppressive agents of the state. The Minister for Home Affairs, William Craig, 1924-2011, to banned NICRA from either assembling, congregating or marching. However, the British government were embarrassed at the sight of British citizens being assaulted by the police and summoned the Prime Minister Charles O'Neill to London. On the 22nd of November 1968, a five-point plan was announced. Londonderry Corporation was to be abolished and replaced by a development commission appointed by the government. The most offensive sections of the Special Powers Act were to be repealed. Local government was to adopt a fair point system of housing allocation based on need. An ombudsman was to be appointed to investigate specific grievances. Universal suffrage in local government elections was to be considered. The Civil Rights March of the 5th of October 1968 turned out to be a transforming moment in modern Irish history. Familiar names who were there or thereabouts on that date and on other key dates around that time were John Hume, Austin Curry, Ivan Cooper, Bernadette Devlin, Eamon McCann, Neil McCafferty, Michael Farrell, Paul Arthur, Paul Bew. With stout hearts and brave resolve, the marchers set out in defiance of the restrictions placed on them. They set off from Duke Street, marched across Craig Avon Bridge to the direction of the city centre. But a large force of baton-wielding police blocked their way and without any provocation moved against the marchers in a brutal attack, assaulting the unarmed people with malice and hate in their hearts and murder on their minds. TV camera crews filmed the brutality and distributed the pictures around the world for everyone to see. Professor Paul Bew wonders, was there an opportunity lost between October 5th and Burn Tullet? If Burn Tullet could have been avoided, could Unionist Prime Minister Terence O'Neill have succeeded with his moderate and modest programme of reform when he appeared willing to take on his hardliners? Burn Tullet Bridge was the setting of an attack on the 4th of January 1969 when a People's Democracy march from Belfast to Derry was attacked by Ulster loyalists. The march had been called in defiance of an appeal by Northern Ireland Prime Minister Terence O'Neill for a temporary end to protest. The Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association and some Derry nationalists had advised against it. Supporters of Ian Paisley, led by Major Ronald Bunting, denounced the march as seditious and mounted counter-demonstrations along the route. At Burntullet, a loyalist crowd numbering in the region of 300 including 100 off-duty members of the Ulster Special Constabulary, USC, attacked the civil rights marchers from adjacent high ground. Stones transported in bulk from William Leslie's quarry at Legahurry were used in the assault, as well as iron bars and sticks spiked with nails. 
nearby members of the Royal Ulster Constabulary did little to prevent the violence. Many of the marchers afterwards described their assailants' lack of concern about the police presence. The violence was followed by renewed riots in Derry City. Terence O'Neill described the march as a foolhardy and irresponsible undertaking and said that some of the marchers and their supporters in Derry were mere hooligans, outraging many, especially as the loyalist attackers had evaded prosecution and celebrated the attack as a victory over the Catholic rebels. The ambush at Burntollet irreparably damaged the credibility of the RUC. Professor Paul Bew, an academic at Queen's University Belfast, who as a student had participated in the march, described it as the spark that lit the prairie fire that is led to the troubles. The British Army was initially deployed on the 14th of August 1969 at the request of the Unionist Government of Northern Ireland in response to the August 1969 riots. Its role was to support the Royal Ulster Constabulary and to assert the authority of the British Government in Northern Ireland.
Spain. 